Welcome to episode nine of The Future of Figure Skating. Jackie Wong of Rocker Skating has become a household name among figure skating fans as the go-to source for competition reports, live tweeting, and analysis. I talked to Jackie a few weeks ago about his pathways into skating, the media landscape in the U.S., and how Asian American representation matters. We also nerded out about the rule changes this season and how different federations determine their national team selections. I have to apologize a little to Jackie and to the listeners this week that the episode didn't come out as I intended before U.S. Nationals. My own trip to Europeans last week got in the way of editing. So you'll get to hear us be hopeful about Jason Brown, and you can listen to that in the knowledge that it all worked out. Jackie, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. That means uh, we're about to get to some of the even more exciting competitions of the season with the year-end championships. I'm always excited for the new year because this is when figure skating goes uh, from zero to 100. Definitely. And you're recovered from your Japanese national light nights. It wasn't so bad, to be honest, because it was only Japan nationals this year. I didn't cover Russian nationals as I usually do. I usually do the two part of literally in the middle of the night trying to cover two competitions at once. So no, it was it wasn't so bad. The competition this year was up and down. There were times when I was like I woke up for this and then there were times <laughs> when I was like oh, I woke up for this. You know, it's a, it was fun. I mean, you know, nationals is always kind of like that too. You know, the split between the pressure cooker and then, you know, the the ones where you really get the best out of like everybody. It's, nationals is its own point of intrigue. Yeah, I chose not to stay up for it this year. And so I was felt like, well, certainly as a big fan of Koshiro Shimada, who I always hope will do well and never quite, you know, manages it. I woke up on Christmas morning. I was like, this is such a great Christmas present. Here we what go. What a great Christmas present. The <laughs> hilarious thing was at the beginning of the year, I think it was Skate America, where I predicted him to be fairly high in the standings. And some somebody on Twitter, like, totally shaded me for like, why would you expect Koshiro to like, you know, whatever. And of course, he had that terrible short program at Skate America, and then he recovered. But like when he skated well at, at Nationals, I was like, yeah. I feel like there's a little bit of validation. It's kind of like a couple years ago when I was really high on Soda Yamamoto, and now he's finally coming into his own. I'm like, uh, yeah, okay, I, I wasn't crazy, right? This is the tough thing with the Japanese men. There are so many really talented skaters, and so many of yeah. them are not consistent. But you know what? A few years ago, when we were watching the Japanese men, it was like, okay, we have Yuzu and Shoma, and then that's it. And like, there was like nobody to really look at and be like, yeah, you could be a consistent person who who can like take the reins later, right? And then here comes Yuma, here comes Shun, here comes Kazuki. Like all, all of a sudden we went from the Yuzu and Shoba show to like this depth of Japanese men that's just been so exciting to watch. And, you know, I mean, we, we saw it. And at the end of that, there could have been so many worthy world championship entrants out of that group. And, you know, only three of them got it. And of course, as those who have been familiar with both U.S. and Canada championship picks controversies or whatever you want to call those debates over the past couple of years, we have one of those this year with Japan. Yeah. I don't know if you have an opinion, if there's a right way to decide these controversies, you know, if it should it just be national, should it be the body of work or some, yeah. co you know, some complicated combination of these? It's so rough, right? Because the way that you think about selection criteria, it leads to different incentives, right? Uh, the, the body of work thing is literally saying, hey, you got to be consistent because we think, we as in the Federation, thinks that consistency leads to a greater probability that you are going to do well at a single competition, right? And that sounds like sound logic to me, but it also changes the way that people prepare. And it changes also the way that you train during the season. Do you train to peak at one event? Do you train to consistently peak at multiple events? And then really peak at certain events, right? Like there's so many things that determine that. And oftentimes that kind of training regimen leads to 
people being able to peak at nationals or not being able to peak at nationals, right? Like it's 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 sort of those middle of the tier folks who could be challenging for that third spot who, you know, they have to kind of select which one would be best for them. Otherwise, they're just going to be screwed either way. So it's tough. I tend to to be more behind the body of work idea simply based on percentages. Figure skating is very much a percentages sport like you want to put a team out there where the probability of these people doing well is the highest and you can't predict that kind of thing when you are bombing every single competition and then you do well at one and that's quote unquote the one that matters so you know i can see it either way i can see it also like the the other argument for it is like, hey, nationals is probably the biggest pressure cooker competition that you could go to outside of the big one at the end, whatever that might be, Olympics or Worlds. And if you if you can handle that pressure and do well there, then you could handle the pressure and do well. But at least it's, it's yeah, it's so tough. And you're trying really to make a tough. rule for that when different skaters are going to handle those things differently exactly yeah exactly it's like it's like when people are like there's one way to cope no there's there's like multiple ways of coping with sadness happiness you know adversity whatever it is and and you can't you can't just create one system that works for everyone so for me it's like you know if i had to choose between the two i would choose the body of work it's not as exciting per se, right? Like if you look at the body of work and you looked at how, or you looked at the criteria for Japan nationals and and I hadn't before I ha- I looked into the whole thing, right? After the, the teams were selected. If you were Rinka Watanabe, you should have looked at your chances as pretty good. And that's why she finished so low at nationals and still got named to the world team, right? She had such a consistent season and not only a consistent season, but consistently high internationally, right? So qualifying for the Grand Prix final, and actually because Kaori Sakamoto had that meltdown at Grand Prix final, she actually got elevated into a, a more prime spot in the selection criteria, and also having one of the top scorers in, in the world, and, you know, X, Y, and Z. And she literally had to come in and, like, just, like, not withdraw and she she would have gotten the, the spot this hyperbole but still like you know she didn't finish that high at japan national that she got the spot and that was precisely the reason and it was kind of like what happened with with adam at nationals i mean adam got fourth so it was yeah. it wasn't like he was like totally bombed it but but it, it was like because he had done so well during the entire season he had to go there and not completely yeah. melt down and he would have gotten the spot. Whereas Jason was in a very similar position, but did have enough of a meltdown that it, it got away from him. So yeah. Yeah. Jason is a, another story we'll be watching. I'm very excited to watch Nationals, even though I think I'm going to be watching it in bits and pieces on my phone because <laughs> I'm going to Europeans. We got six spots in singles for the US skaters. There are two spots that are easy picks. And then that's it. <laughs> There's nothing else that's anywhere near guaranteed. And that's the intrigue, I think, this year. And really, it does, in in a lot of ways, whoever ends up actually being on the podium is going to matter a whole lot versus, you know, if you're thinking about years past. It does seem like, I mean, with Japanese nationals and with so many of the other times where people are always going to be upset about the results oh, of course they like doesn't get sent but the times that people have been you know really upset it seems like it's because there wasn't clarity about what the rules were beforehand it's perceived right like it's like you didn't read the rules so you didn't have clarity because you didn't read the rules or like you didn't think the rules pertain to you so you didn't have i don't know it's an interesting one and you know you're always going to have to advocate for yourself right there's a third way i love that we're just geeking out about this this whole thing but but like there's also then the Spanish and Korean versions of picking teams, which is pick a couple competitions and add up all the points and like the people who have the highest points get it. And that as logical as that sounds is just rife with potential issues of like preferential treatment. I don't know. I mean, it's it's figure skating, right? You're never going to get away from the fact that there are judges judging these things and so it's really hard to do even last year right when martin diaz had such a huge gap 
over Hurtado and Kalyavin going into Europeans, everybody was still like on the edge of their seat because it's like 10 points. Okay, 10 points is big, but like a fall on Twizzles or like a couple of levels and you're done, right? And so it, it wasn't said and done. And maybe that that might be an intrigue of it. But yeah. and then you got the Korean version where it's like you have so many domestic competitions and you have to show up to every single one of them. And oof. It's interesting because they are trying in some ways, I don't know if it's actually overtly trying to, to mimic it, but it's it's very similar to what they do at, in Russia with the Russian cup system. Although the Russian cup system, you don't have to be in every single one of them, right? It's more of the Grand Prix kind of thing where you go to one or two, I think, um, of them during the season. The U.S. has been changing the qualifying process to get to nationals where it's not just the regionals sectionals nationals oh yeah like but you have a couple of opportunities to get into that and i like that so much more and that's that's literally one of the best things that came out of the, pan the pandemic is them getting rid of the whole we're gonna do the regular like regional sectional system because they're just you know you can game the system and be like i'm gonna go represent this region or th i'm sorry this section and it's like an easier way for you to get to nationals or whatnot so I remember when I was skating back in the mid nineties in LA and like LA figure skating club was just like full of people and you got really good skaters an intermediate or novice or whatever. And, and they just, they can't get out of regionals because there's so many good skaters from that region anyway. So it's an interesting thing. And I have taken us to a whole lot of tangents. <laughs> Deep in the weeds, but actually... That is a great transition, though, because I wanted to ask you a little bit about your origins in skating <laughs> and how you got involved in the sport originally. My humble origins that I never really share much of because I wasn't that good of a skater. Um, I so <laughs> There are so I, many people in the sport who are judges and all of these people. It's because they're passionate about yeah, it. Yeah, because right. Because they exactly. were good at it. So right. Yeah, exactly. I've actually never told this part of the story, which I'm I'm kind of piecing together as I've been telling the story more and more. But I'm an immigrant, uh, came to the U.S. when I was about nine years old. And one of the things that I've always been fascinated with was Olympic sports. And so, like, I'd watch the Olympics all the time. For whatever reason, I never watched figures. I never really watched winter sports until I came to the U.S. And it was, like, the second year I was in the U.S., I was still trying to get acclimated to the new environment and all that stuff i just got kind of like obsessed with the 92 world championships for whatever reason even though that was like not a very well skated event with the women it's like christy yamaguchi just like ran away with the title because everybody else was just falling all over the place and even christy wasn't didn't skate as well as she did at the olympics but i was just like obsessed with that competition and back in the days of VHS tapes. And so I would just, I would tape all these competitions and watch them over and over and over again. That's how I learned skating. And I hate to say the way that I learned how to jump and all that kind of stuff was like, quote unquote, self-taught. I don't like using that word because I didn't teach myself very well. I'm sure a lot of figure skating fans relate to that, especially when they're kids and they want to like emulate mm -hmm. the, what they see on TV and they're not literally at the rink or they're not at the gym or they're not at the whatever it is that, the, that their sport is in. I learned how to rotate off the ice. I learned how to spin on my heel in socks. Like my, my coaches would always be like, why are you spinning on your heel? I'm like, that's because that's how I know how to spin. And so I've never been a good spinner. I finally somehow convinced my parents to like take me to the rink and, you know, get me public group lessons. And that's how, how it all started. And so like, I never really trained seriously because it was always just a hobby. I had coaches. I never really trained for competitions, partially why I am so bad at competing because I never got those reps when I was a kid. And the, the older you are, the more you are in your head. And I never got to a point of comfort with, with performing in front of people in the skating sense, at least. Um, so I, I trained for I don't know, five or six years, middle school, high school, kind of fell out of it at the end of high school when I was burning myself out with trying to take, you know, all those AP classes when I was taking, but um, jumping was natural to me because I, that's what I really liked. Um, mm -hmm. Never, never had any skating skills. As I said, I never really spun. 
<laughs> so so I I jumped doubles and like a couple of really ugly triples were like kind of like natural ish for me. Um, so that was like the origins of it, right? And then when I went to college, that was when I actually began seriously thinking about learning how to skate. And so like I started Stanford figure skating with a couple friends as a club and a team. And then uh, it dissolved after we graduated. And now it's back, which I'm really excited about. And then when I went to grad school, I started Penn figure skating again, dissolved after a couple of years after I left Penn for my master's. And then now it's back and I'm very excited about that. So, so college was when I, you know, got a coach and I was like, you need to teach me how to skate. You need to reteach me how to do all these jumps, all of that kind of stuff. And of course I still have old habits and I still have old habits and, and it's, it's hard to break, but Elliot Halverson, bless her soul, has been fantastically patient with me in reteaching me a bunch of stuff as an adult props to Elliot for being able to teach this old dog new tricks. Being 40 years old and getting my doubles back and, you know, learning how to actually do a backspin properly for the first time, you know, all that kind of stuff has been actually really nice. That's kind of how it all, you know, I, I competed in college a little. And while I was in college, I, I did some I did some coaching because I was like, oh, I, I actually am learning how to do this. So I'm going to like pass it on to people. So that was it was interesting to be able to kind of do that as a way of reinforcing what I was learning and, you know, a little bit of choreography for like my friends. It wasn't like really big time anything, but I started judging. I remember when I was uh, in college, there were a lot of these judges in, you know, in, in these competitions that who were like, yeah, we're really looking for like new people to come in and judge. We're like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Um, but it ended up also being very time consuming. And, you know, I ended up being, I think, a silver level regional judge at some point. And then I started work and I was just like, I have no time for any of this. Um, so that was kind of part one and part two of my story. And then I fell out of love with figure skating after Michelle Kwan retired. <laughs> by, by that, I really mean like, I just didn't follow it as obsessively as I, I used to. I still watched it, but it was like 2008, 2000, no, 2009, when the recession was really at its peak. And I was like, I was an architect at the time, luckily kept my job, you know, but it was, you know, it was kind of harder times. And, and I was like, where can I find something to do where that I could get a little bit of supplementary income in? And I found this thing where they were like looking for people to write about very specific topics. It was kind of like there were, there were these sites that were like aggregations of experts. Right. And mm -hmm. I, I wrote, I wrote for examiner.com and was their figure skating examiner. And that was how I got started. And then I realized it wasn't writing, like copying the style of like AP, you know, associated press mm -hmm. recaps of figure skating competitions that was like useful for people because mm -hmm. there are already people doing it. It's actually like bringing in technical expertise. And also like there was no live play-by-play -play of figure skating in an era when streaming was starting to become a thing. And so that's when Twitter came in. Let's, let's hope it continues um, in some way. That's when Twitter came in. That's when I started being like, there's a thing that I could do. And, and then, you know, it just grew and grew and I don't know how it happened, but now I'm here doing the stuff. <laughs> so that's part three. And you really found such an essential niche. Was the judging what prepared you to be able to do the live blogging and tell the the jumps? Or how how do you have that magical skill of seeming to be able to watch six skaters at the same time? Uh, is what I want to know, really. <laughs> uh, one thing that I really love to do is multitask, and and that is just something that I I like. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure if it was the judging that prepared me for it, but I do remember in the times of figure skating forums and discussion boards still exist, right? But back in the day when Twitter wasn't around, when social media wasn't a thing, the way you get your information from communities that are not in the same place, right, was through discussion boards. And I remember there were people who would go to events and like literally just like jot down all the things that are happening and then like transcribe it onto the forum mm -hmm. and and tell you what happened during practices or during the competitions and what the scores are and like how people are looking and stuff. That was always something that fascinated me about 
you know, just sports in general, but like when I watched competitions, I was always listening for Dick Button, Peggy Fleming, who, you know, mm-hmm. Scott Hamilton, Sandra Bezik to tell me what they saw in practice. Right. Because like that, that was something that was really fascinating to me. And that was something that I was like, nobody's doing this. I'm literally just going to sit at practice and like tell you what's going on because there seems to be an appetite for all this stuff. So it was, it was funny because I was actually back in 2003 or so when I was in college and I was part of, you know, some, some discussion board and I was like, Hey, I'm going to go to it was some competition at the San Jose rink, which is where I skated. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be your eyes and ears. And I remember having my, like my notepad and like jotting all this stuff down. And, and I was like really fun for me. And I was like 2003. And I remember like in 2009, I was like, I can be doing this. That's just kind of how it works. And like, you know, everything is about repetition, right? Like I've been doing this for so long that the reason I'm able to just spot things out of the corner of my eye and jot it down and also remember it is one, because I have a knack for memorization, which is not good for anything theoretical. Like whenever there was any sort of theory oriented class in college, which was like everything, I was just like, I would be so lost, which made me really good in high school because in high school, everything was about the answer. In college, everything was about the process. Um, <laughs> so so I'm good at road memorization. I have just watched so much skating that I, I can see a pattern down the ice from a mile away. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I know what they're going to do next. And I know what they're setting up for. And and, and I, I'm already prepared to jot it down before they even do it. Mm. Right. So a lot of the times it's, it's like that split second of pre-work right before somebody does something where I gain a couple of seconds of time to watch somebody else do it. And I go back to that person and be like, did they land it? Oh, they landed it. I'm just going to, you know, I already got it. So, you know, it's, it's, it it manifests itself most during six minute warmups. And that, that actually takes a lot of intense concentration. And I, that's why I don't do it all the time, but like for final groups in big competitions, I will often live tweet the entire six minute warmup in one tweet and tell you what everybody did. One, it's really fun to do. Two, it's also like not that many people can do it. <laughs> so so I'm happy to provide that that level of information for people. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you don't get you're watching on TV. They're following yeah. whoever the you know the person is at the time and you're like, you know, someone will do a jump, but you won't see the whether they landed it or any of that kind of thing. So it, it's that difference between what the experience that you get when you have your own eyes to follow what you're interested in versus when you're, you know, following what the TV is following. There's at least a certain part of the figure skating fandom who really craves this, like what is happening outside of what we actually see in the competition kind of thing. And, you know, I, I, I think I, I, I quenched that thirst a little bit, right. For, for those folks. Another piece of the the service that you're providing is by covering so many of the skaters who aren't, you know, the final group that you can see the practice report for. There are a lot of skaters I like. I'm just going to keep using yeah, yeah, Kuro as an example. But like, <laughs> when you're like, but I want to know about the skater who's not who I, yeah. everyone is following. It's really nice to be able to, you know, to see that. Certainly in the U.S., the landscape around media and coverage of skating has changed, you know, so much since the 90s. I watched, you know, Michelle Kwan in 95 and 96 at the World Championships because that's what was on TV in my house and, you know, and did my own dancing around the living room and always was obsessed with spirals because of that. So there there are also very particular... I will say one very particular person who was commentating on on those competitions who was obsessed with spirals who would tell us about the spirals all the time. And frankly, I don't I really don't think with without some of the the American commentators especially in the in the 90s they had an outsized effect on things that were happening that I don't think they really realized, right? Like the, mm. the, the fact that spirals and laybacks and the leg position of leg laybacks became a thing that people obsessed about yeah. was very much because Dick Button and, and Peggy Fleming obsessed over those things, right? Like yeah. that was something that whether 
you believe it or not, was kind of subliminally put into our brains. I was like, this is the proper way of doing these things. But it's like, is it really the proper way of doing these things? But like, you know, it's, it's, I, I often go back to those years and be like, how much of what I think is the quote unquote, like right way of figure skating is literally just me hearing those things, right? From the commentators. Well, and that whole idea of these things that are about aesthetics and when we say what is a good position what is mm -hmm. a beautiful position as if those are things that are objective truth to them rather than exactly we've decided what a particular you know ballet told us that this was the way to do this so therefore exactly. we copied it and now we're not even thinking about that but we're just accepting exactly why why is turnout the proper way of doing stuff, right? Like, why is the the, the leg in an arabesque position the way to do? So? I know it's, it's it is. I've had to deal with that a lot in my in just like the way that I talk about figure skating. Like, how much of it is the history of it versus how much of it is actually like, hey, this is technically difficult. Right. And not everything that's valuable in skating or that can be judged in skating can be broken down into, an, you know, objective terms. And yet it's a judged sport. And so yeah. we're never going to get answers to some of these, you know, perennial controversies in skating because you will never square that circle. Skating has certainly changed in terms of its popularity and who's following it. Do you think that we will ever get back to a point where skating is mainstream popular? And I guess my follow-up question to that is like, should that be the goal? And sometimes it seems like, especially in the U.S., there's this sense of like, we're chasing what it was yeah. in the 90s. The, the answer to your first question is, we have been, just not in the U.S., Figure skating is huge, and you know this, right? Figure skating is huge in Japan. Figure skating is huge in Russia. Figure skating is huge in South Korea, at least for singles. The the South Korea one is, is fascinating because I think they hold their nationals in just like a rink, like not in an arena. And actually somebody DM'd me the other day and was like, are there tickets available for South Korean nationals? Because like, I'm going to be in South Korea. I'm like, I don't think so. Which, you know, and for a competition that's as, uh, for a sport that's as popular in, in, in a country, you would think that that would be the case, but. You probably have encountered, you know, a gap who does a lot of the stuff on Twitter, trying to popularize and share information about South Korean so, skating yeah. and constantly is running up against the, I'm just trying to tell the world about this. Why won't you let me have the, you know, the ability to share this? Uh, right. Like there's no scoring page for South Korean nationals. They send out PDFs afterwards that are that are like on a on a on a site that like and you have to click five times to get those PDFs. It's very bizarre. And I don't understand what it is, right? They might just be having to put together the infrastructure. I don't know. It's like what different federations and what they prioritize and thinking about right. who their audiences are and yeah, all of that. Yeah, yeah. But to the point of the, the US, I've always had this this theory, whether or not it's like a valid theory, that figure skating post-1992 would have been on the decline had it not been for Tanya and Nancy. And the reason for that is that before the 90s, and um, this is my my rudimentary understanding of, of how network TV worked before the 90s, because I did not experience it in the US. But before the 90s, as I understand it, people were very much glued to the major television networks. There were not that many channels. And we were force fed things to watch. Figure skating was one of those things that was on ABC or on CBS or on whatever it is. And you just watch that. And even in the 90s, right? Like, yeah, cable was coming into play a lot more. But still, like, you know, you go to the afternoon on, on a Sunday afternoon and it's wide world of sports and you got some weird pro-am competition in figure skating that you're watching the same programs over and over again that had like a triple loop in it. And so it was sort of that force feeding mechanism that's like, that's why figure skating was popular because people were watching it. And when people watch figure skating, they actually do get intrigued by it because of various different things that figure skating brings to the table between sports and art, you know, unnecessary and necessary drama that happens in the sport. But for me, right, the decrease in reliance of network TV and the the proliferation of just like 
a lot of other things that you could watch just led to people being like, well, figure skating is not my priority. Number one, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there unless it's like in front of my face. And that's, you know, when, when the Olympics happens, it's in front of their face and people are obsessed with swimming and, you know, whatever, because it's literally, you go to NBC and it's literally just playing all the time. And they're like, oh, this is really fascinating. I want to watch it like curling, right? Like this is really fascinating. I want to watch it. And then, you know, when it's not in front of your face, you forget about it. So my theory had always been that if had it not been for Tanya and Nancy, that peak would not have happened. Michelle Kwan's dominance for 10 years was great, right? But had it not been for Tanya and Nancy setting up the huge surge of interest in figure skating, even Michelle Kwan, I don't think would have been able to just single-handedly prop up the artificially high TV ratings that figure skating was bringing. I mean, it was just, it was just so much, right? Like we had competing tours, they were selling out all the time. I mean, people were not only fascinated with sport, but fascinated with the people in the sport. And then the decline happened, right? And then other countries were also, you know, skating well, or, you know, the domination was different, right? Like the the, the people who were on top were different. And for whatever reason, the U.S.'s obsessive nature with women's figure skating, you know, when when there's no dominant force, you're not so obsessed anymore. We've had two of the last four Olympic champions in men's figure skating. We've had multiple ice dance Olympic medalists, including an Olympic champion ice dance team. None of that has brought any of of the sort of whatever that we had in the 90s. And it's partially because we love our figure skating every four years now. And it's, it's not so much that every weekend you're bombarded with all of this figure skating coverage. That's always been my theory is with the advent of cable and choice, figure skating was going to be on the decline anyway. And I don't really think it's on the decline anymore. I think we've, um, in the US at least, it's it's plateaued and leveled out in terms of interest. And I think that's fine. And we have some personalities who bring in you know more viewership than others in the US. And it was great to see Stars on Ice actually filling up arenas this past summer because four years ago, that wasn't the case. Four years ago, my comp seats for Stars on Ice was at the ice level. This year, my my comp seats for Stars on Ice was like 20 rows up, right? And it was like, yay, I, you know, I like that I'm not sitting right next to the ice because this whole arena is basically filled. And it was really nice to see. You know, are we gonna have mentions of like Michelle Kwan on Will and Grace or friends or you know, like popular television, like that kind of stuff? I don't think that's going to happen anymore unless we have an actual, like a real personality who also is like a big, you know, elite world-class winning everything kind of figure skating. I don't think that's going to happen. And it's interesting, I think too, because so much of sports in the U.S., I mean, it is so many places, but so much of sports in the U.S. is about nationalism. And I think it's much more enjoyable. Certainly, I feel like it's much more enjoyable to be a skating fan if you're not focused on oh yeah on nationalism and it's something that I actually really appreciate even though obviously not that you know Japanese skating fans and tours and everything don't want to promote Japanese skaters but there's a much broader appreciation of the athletes from a variety of countries in terms of who gets invited to participate in things and I saw both wow. Canadian and the U.S. stars on ice and I was it was so wonderful to see that they had Satoko as part of yeah. the Canadian tour. And it just, it was nice to see the difference between, you know, the Canadian tour is sort of full of Canadian nostalgia, but at the yeah. same time, they had a much more diverse group of professional skaters than the US tour, which was all the well, Olympians. So it's just sort of a I different mean, sense of like how you present the sport, even on the same tour. But, you know, go back to 1990s stars on ice and, and champions on ice. It, that was a very international tour. And you know why it was a very international tour? It's because the money was money. there, right? And the money right now is in dreams on ice. And yeah, I can't remember what the other on ices are. Fantasy on ice, right? Yeah. Like all those summer tours in Japan, those that's where the money is because they sell out crowds and they literally have like three or four shows where they're all just packed. 
and all the skaters are treated like royalty. And that was the height of figure skating in the US yeah. back in the late 90s and early 2000s. The people who did Champions on Ice and Stars on Ice year after year, they were set for life. Four years of being on Champions on Ice or whatever as as even like a mid tier person i don't think there were really that many mid-tier persons at that point it was like literally all of your like world champions and like world medalists and stuff four years of that you could retire it was just so much so much at, at that point and it's changed obviously yeah and it seems like now skating is somewhat caught in between that very sort of broadcast tv era and a more viral video driven era you know, we're not quite in the place to be able to capitalize on that when it comes to actually, you know, having competition videos and certainly like those basic questions of accessibility um, <laughs> are, yeah. we're still really struggling with. This is one of those sports where you want to go back and watch stuff over and over again. A football game goes and it happens and then it's not archived for the future. I don't think you see football fans being like why aren't these things archived right like it's it's a different thing because you are literally watching very specific pieces of sport and artwork that if you weren't there you miss it obviously if you weren't at a football game you miss all the plays and all the you know but once you know the result those things become much less interesting it's, unless it's you're different like really yeah. trying to follow some exactly particular thing. exactly exactly and there's so much of it as somebody who basically ignored skating from maybe 2006 to 17 um, and then got obsessed and went back to try to learn, like, what did I miss? Being able to go back and find things on YouTube. Thank goodness for YouTube. So valuable, but become harder and all of those things. But it is something that you see the success of some of the things that, you know, with on ice perspectives or some of like what Alaj Balde has been able to do. And it's not always the Olympic champion skaters that can get that moment. And I think that's yep. something that could be, you know, really fantastic for the sport. It's also so hit or miss. I wanted to ask you sort of how you're seeing um, the changes in the sport this season. I mean, there's a number of rule changes, three components. We've got different spin and axle rule, you know, sequence rules and all of those things. How are you seeing the impact of all of that this year? My favorite rule change, potentially my favorite rule change in, in quite a long time is the introduction of being able to do more with jump sequences than, mm -hmm. than in the past. I think it's just, it's led to a lot more creativity in what skaters are doing with them. And I actually would love to see that kind of thing go into the short program. At Korea Nationals this weekend, all your women's short programs are going to be some combination of double axle, triple flip, triple let, triple toe, or double axle, triple let, triple flip, triple toe, or double axle, triple loop, triple let, triple toe. It's like, you know what they're going to do. And some of them are doing it because they have to. Some of them be, are doing it because it's real. They, they are really good at it. But like, what if somebody is actually much better at doing some other sequence, right, than what your traditional one is. And like, how, why is a triple let's triple toe more valuable, quote unquote, than, uh, you know, a triple let's half loop triple flip, right? Like, look at Katja Kurakova. If she could do a, a triple let's half loop triple flip as her combo in the short program, her prospects would be a whole lot different. Right, because her triple toe is her back end triple toe is just not that good, and it it favors certain types of jumpers over others. And so, you know, I, I'd love to see a little bit more variety there, and and maybe that's where yeah. we're headed. The most controversial one is probably the taking the pattern out of the yeah. <laughs> out of the rhythm dance, and it's like. So we're basically having two free dances. One is a shorter free dance than, and, and one is a longer free dance. That's what we're doing. I mean, we'll see what happens. I think the ISU wanted to like try and experiment the year after. I would not be surprised if they brought back the pattern in a year. Mm -hmm. It is one of those things where it's like, well, compulsories are so boring because it was everybody doing the same thing, the same music. And then now it's like, well, we're missing that element of being able to directly compare <laughs> Ice dance is also so weirdly interesting because even depending on where you are sitting, not even like watching it live or watching it on a on, from a camera's point of view, but like even where you're sitting, you see different things because at one point you can see like an incredibly deep edge, and another in another place you're you're seeing okay, that's just that's an edge. I see an edge. <laughs> 
you see patterns so differently, you understand proximity between the partners and proximity to the ice coverage so differently for ice dance that it's 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 actually an incredibly difficult sport to judge because of that. I'm not going to go into any any sort of like backroom dealings and whatnot that we we often hear about with ice dance, but it's if you really look at it, um, and and it really takes like precision slow mo replays for you to really get a good sense of how mm -hmm. things were skated. You you can get a sense of how things were skated, but it is really hard. And you know, I'm speaking from a from the point of view of somebody who has done very elementary ice dance, right? And and understand rhythm, but doesn't necessarily understand some of the more intricate stuff. But, you know, even, even when you talk to people who are lifelong ice dancers and talk to them about programs, it's like, mm -hmm. well, I saw this, but I really couldn't see that because I'm literally sitting right here, right? Like, it's just, it's hard. I mean, and there's that difference between, okay, so what is the level that gets called versus the GOE on it? I was thinking about this at Skate America, watching the crowd's reaction to... Caitlin and John Luke. Well, Caitlin and John Luke, yes. And then also I was thinking about Hannah and Daisuke. Also, we're just oh, yeah. like... Mm -hmm. The crowd booed, which, you know, I'm not going to suggest that I support people booing the judges, but like, you know, thinking about it, So who from a purely like performance charisma, I don't know enough about ice dance. I go back and right. watch it and I can see they're slow on the lift. I can go back and watch it and like pick those things out. I wasn't noticing yeah. those things in the moment. Yeah. And so you get these things of like trying to understand, you know, how the, these decisions are made. And I think in some ways I, I see the same thing happen with under rotations where you can tell sometimes it's very obvious. Other times somebody's jump will still look beautiful. Yeah. And then they'll kind of catch the under rotation after the fact. And it's not that not saying that it wasn't there. It's just there's that difference between what the judge sees and what the audience sees. Um, oh, totally. And, and it well, partially is why. I've this season because I I'm not doing ice talk anymore as the podcast. I'm like aching to do something, right? So I've been doing these these live things as the competitions are going. And part of the reason I wanted to do that was to do exactly what you are talking about, which is like kind of preempt the viewer or the the listener or the watcher with the fact that you might have seen this, but you're about to see something different than what you expected because as somebody who watches figure skating ad nauseum, I caught a sense of these things likely go that are likely going to get called as under rotated. And you're going to see the score go down five, 10 points uh, more than you think it would. And it, it is one of those things where it's like, I'd be like, I literally just talked about that. And somebody would respond to me and be like, so-and-so was robbed. And I'm like, I saw it in real time. And they went in and looked at it and they called it in 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 slow-mo. And, and it's like the under rotation thing, I get it. I I get why it's been instituted, but in the absence of slow-mo and being able to replace stuff at at an immediate, you know, kind of level. I mean, there were so many under rotations back in the day that you never caught. Right. And and those would have changed a lot of results <laughs> if if we had if we had the you same can go back and watch it. those competitions now with, oh, oh, with yeah. that in with that eye. And it's oh, very yeah. different. It's also a matter though of what are you prioritizing in the yeah. in the scores? Yeah. Like I've talked to a number of coaches and athletes who would really like the quarter to not exist. Um uh -huh. under rotation, sure. The cue, no. Yeah. Especially with it requiring the negative GOE. It's like, yeah, totally. I get why they did the can argue about yeah. that, but it's, it's sort of that question of like, okay, that's a mistake, but how much do you value certain mistakes yeah. over other mistakes? Yeah. And all of these are, these are choices we make about what's important I, in the sport. I get why they did the cue. It's one of the things that I, I like and don't like, I like it in theory, because if you tell me that whoever it is as the caller can tell me that a jump was exactly a quarter turn short. You are telling me that there is a level of precision in the way that you are calling things that actually does not exist in real life. And so I, I get why, because it's like when you're at the quarter, you're basically there and you know, you shouldn't be penalized that much for it, but also what is a quarter? 
I have talked to so many different people, technical controllers, specialists, and all, all kinds of folks about like, how do they actually look at it? And some people will be like, you look at it as where their momentum's going. You look at it as the flight of travel. You look at it, whatever, like whatever it is that they're doing, everybody's everybody's got a different understanding of what an under rotation is. And that's that's partially why you see things where you're like, oh my God, that's gotta be an under rotation. And then it's actually not called that. It's, be, it's not because you're looking at different things. It's because people's understanding of what, what an under rotation is, is different than that. What do you think the, an under rotation? Again, it's just this level of precision that I don't, that does not exist in the sport. And how much value do you put on that precision versus judge's attention that is a limited resource going to various different things? Oh, yeah. A lot of the changes with things like the three components and that's like, okay, we're trying to make it simpler for judges so that it will be more accurate. I'm still not sure, good in theory, not sure we're seeing it in practice working out that way, but... I really, I'm really hoping that skating scores will do uh, an analysis of the actual range among the three components versus the um, five components. And has it actually changed the spread of scores? The thing that anecdotally I think has changed, um, and this anecdotally for me, because that's where where my anecdotes come from, is I I do think, so in, in the past, you can reliably say that in almost every instance, your skating skills, let's say your skating skills are at zero, right? As an index, your transitions are going to be lower. Your uh, performance, composition, and execution, or wait, performance, composition, and interpretation are going to be at around the same level as your skating skills or higher. That's usually how you see it. With the, the three components thing, you've actually seen the the place in the, the like relative places switch depending on like people are actually saying, oh, wow, this person really actually performed this program and we're going to provide them with a score that says they performed the program. So it's not so much a difference in the spread of those scores as much as it is that there's more variation in what's getting placed. That's what others. I've seen. Mm-hmm. That's what I have seen. I would still love to see more of that kind of thing happen, right? Um, and and you know, the range for it to be more uh, whatever. The one that I keep going back to, and it was it was one that I that that I harped on multiple times last year was Josephine Tagard's short program, where she always performs the hell out of that program, and all of a sudden it was like that's a seven, and you gave this other person an, an eight and a half for a phoned in program? Is that what happened with the performance and execution or the interpretation of music? You are seeing a little bit more of that differentiation, but like, you know, hey, judges, you can be a nine in interpretation and you can be a, a four in skating skills. Those things can exist. Yeah. And it's not controversial. It might be controversial for for the skater, maybe. I don't know. But it's like, you can think about it in different ways. And I think that's that kind of thing never really got out of the system. I do think simplifying it to composition, which is literally about how the program itself is composed mm-hmm. versus presentation, which is literally about what you see on the ice yeah. versus skating skills, which is literally about how well the skater skates. That brings a certain level of clarity that we didn't have before, where it felt like a lot of things were intertwined. One thing that you've talked some about is the importance of representation in skating and particularly looking at Asians and Asian Americans in skating. And I think this you had shared something that that was overlapping with some of what you've been doing in your professional yep. outside of skating. <laughs> my, non, well. non, my non-figure skating your, life. Yeah. Your other profession, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I still remember back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when it was like all of these East Asian girls who sort of grew up with Michelle Kwan in mind and, and Christy Amaguchi in mind as as their idols. And, and you saw all these younger East Asian, especially girls who, who were coming in. And, and I remember just hearing all kinds of just like microaggressions about how 
they were clones or, you know, none of them have any expression or, you know, whatever it is that that people like to just like imbue into like an entire population of skaters. And as much as East Asian representation has been high in figure skating, there's still things that come with being an East Asian person in figure skating in the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, being an East Asian in Asia, in, in East Asia is a very different kind of thing. But you think about that very differently. And I was actually just talking about this with a, a friend of mine the other day, and and they were like, oh, yeah, you know, this U.S. Nationals is going to have the greatest number of people of color ever. And I'm like, if you're excluding Asian people, you're right. But you can't talk about people yeah. of color without talking about Asian people. What's interesting about this year's nationals is also that not only are there more Black skaters in the mix than, than before, more Hispanic Latino skaters in the mix than, than before, but there are also more Southeast Asian and South Asian skaters than usual. And I, I think that's a promising part of this whole thing. And we'll see what comes of it. That whole thing about representation is it's it's universal, right? You you see yourself in in something that you love and you think, okay, well, I could do that. And as a kid, that's just, a, you know, as, as a sport where you have to start as a little kid, more or less, in order to be successful um, in, in the elite ranks, that's all you got. If your parents are supportive of that, then you're going to get that opportunity. And obviously, figure skating is an expensive sport. So it leads to a lot of different types of, of disparities that are just underlying in the sport itself as it is. So, you know, I, I think being able to see someone like Dintron, someone like a Star Andrews, right? Someone like a Mark Sandusky, who's, who's coming back to nationals again, being able to see those types of folks, Jacob Sanchez, people who, you know, represent something that's mm -hmm. different from the quote unquote norm that you're, that you usually see, that's helpful. And frankly, the, the more that this sport becomes international, and it's been over the past 20, 30 years, right, outside of the U.S., mm -hmm. the more that's going to happen because you are you are seeing all kinds of East Asian skaters, right? You are seeing, you're, you're, you're seeing with Javier Fernandez, you know, for 10, five to 10 years, someone who is a, a Hispanic skater who was dominating competitions, right? Like you're, it's a different way of understanding what you could be when you're a kid than just being like, oh, it's it's all the same people who are there. And you know, that that doesn't that goes beyond race, right? You got you have gender and sexual orientation that's part of this whole thing too. And it's it's figure skating is a historically and still fairly conservative sport. And so that kind of thing just makes a huge difference in not only in skaters' lives, but also the future of the sport. Yeah, and I get so much hope from seeing, you know, not, not just that skaters are more present in these spaces who have different identities and backgrounds, but that there is in little, you know, little ways there's starting to be, I think, more space for skaters to be either choosing to present music or programs that are reflecting their heritage and being welcomed for that, but also yeah. not having to, you know, having to do that and there being a little more, yeah. you know, artistic space around that too. Cause often there's that, that first, like, okay, you're here, but you either are in a stereotypical role or you're very much in a conforming to the existing yeah. culture role. And that seems like it's starting to open up a bit more. Yeah. My last question is just who are you kind of most excited to be watching progress through the rest of this season? Some of the skaters or the sort of storylines that you're particularly going to be watching. It's a good circle back to the beginning of this conversation. Jason yeah. Brown at Nationals is going to be a very interesting one for me. You know, I saw him at Skate America and I almost said to him, I think you should go to Nationals. And afterwards, after he announced that he was going to go to nationals, I texted with him and he was like, I almost told you about it when I was at Skate American. I'm like, there was something about the way that he was watching the competition when I when I saw him at Skate America that I was like, you're not here only for U.S. figure skating's, you know, publicity purposes. You're here for other things as well, it seems like. So the reason I'm 
partially so intrigued about this whole storyline is San Jose was the locale of his demise four years ago. And I I, I hate that I'm like over dramatizing this whole thing, but it, it was a turning point in his life, right? Not making the 2018 Olympic team and not only not making it, but having that meltdown that he had mm-hmm. in the free skate that people just didn't expect to happen. And him basically after that changing his entire, up, like uprooting his entire life and making that change so that he could find himself and and go back to the olympics which he did in you know in spectacular fashion and and i remember watching the olympics being like how do you jason brown not have that be your last competition because it 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 was one of his best right and the way that happens is for redemption i think right it's it's for him to have whether or not he makes the world team i I don't think that really matters to him so much. I think he wants to come out of San Jose with a good impression of being in San Jose and for him to be like, I did this on my own term. And frankly, if he did it on his own terms and he skates the way that he can skate, he's going to make the world team. The last couple of seasons, he, in so many ways, his skating is better than ever. Oh, yeah. it's always that question, you know, what, at what point do you keep, you know, stop competing when you've hit your sort of competitive goals, but certainly from a fan perspective, I want to see more of what he can do next. And yeah. you, know, you only get a certain level of when you're training that hard. And so I always, you know, whenever I got to see Yuzu and Nathan go head to head, it was always such, such a treat because you're like, how many more of these are we going to get? And that's a thing about figure skating, right? On a good season, you get to see a, a skater compete, what, four times? It's not that much. You get so sucked into their narratives. And, you know, it's it's part of sports. It's part of being a sports fan. But it's just, it's um, you just got to savor every single chance that you have. And is Nationals, is that Jason's last hurrah, whether or not he makes Worlds? Hey, who knows? Maybe I, I who knows? <laughs> like he could pull a Daisuke Takahashi and be like, I did my thing at my last nationals and I'm going to, I'm going to go do something else. Ooh, now you just got me thinking about Jason's ice dance second career. Not that I, I think he's going to do it, but just like send me off in a whole like mental that would be, uh, picture. That would that. be something, wouldn't it? Yeah. Jason Brown, ice dance. There's I'm... anybody who could do it. What else am I looking forward to? I mean, I'm interested to see where the, the Kari Sakamoto story ends this year, especially given that she hasn't really taken the reins of the world champion mindset until Japan Nationals. Yeah. And you would think, right, that at the most, probably the most nerve-wracking competition of your entire season, that would be where the cracks happen. And that wasn't, she was finally getting to the point that we were seeing from her last year. I just rewatched her short program and free skate from last year at the Olympics and, and at Worlds. And I was like, oh, wow, this was a different skater last year. And she hasn't gotten back to that yet. And and she was she was showing signs of that at, at Japan Nationals. Obviously, she won it, but she's got more to give. And and you wonder where that's going to go this year and, and if, if she's going to be able to, to figure that out even more. I wonder if she's a skater that I don't know anything about how she's thinking about these things but it makes me wonder if she's a skater who maybe needed a little more time off after the olympic cycle i mean i think it's like you want to come off of being world champion and go right into the momentum but in some ways there are more skaters that have had a hard time coming off the olympic cycle than there are skaters that have been able to absolutely ride it i think she said at skate america i've never had so many opportunities or something like that. I think you're right. Like there, there is something to that. You know, Kari is not, she doesn't have the notoriety of like Midori Ito or Mawasada, right? Like she hasn't gotten to that point yet, even though she has now won a world championship title and she's now won multiple nationals title and she's won an Olympic medal, right? And you wonder how much of that has been part of the story this year. Lastly, Deanna Stellato. <laughs> Can't forget about the return. Speaking of somebody who was a single skater and ended up doing something else, the return of Deanna Stellato and the potential of her getting a world medal this year. I mean, there's no better time than this year. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited. Did a, an interview with them after Skate America, where we kind of nerded out about pairs and 
like all of their creativity on elements and how much they just and both of them it was really cool to see skaters who like obviously very much want to win things but not just in it yep. for to want to win but because they want to try new elements and they want to be innovators in the sport even i was even more of a fan afterward and seeing how dedicated they are I mean, recall the years of a, a mid-30s Deanna Stellato doing throw quad sow cows. The fearlessness of this woman is just out of control. Thanks so much, Jackie. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. You're going to have a lot to edit. So um excited for this 18-part episode that you're going to bring out. Thank you again, Jackie, for nerding out about skating with me. You can look at the show notes for a transcript of this episode, as well as some of the links to things we discussed. You can follow Jackie at Rocker Skating on Twitter and at rockerskating.com. You can reach me with comments or suggestions for topics and people I should talk to by email at fsfuturepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at futurefspodcast. Remember to subscribe and share with your friends.